according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I trust, according to Second Peter chapter 3, that we are looking for these things, that we're not caught up on the events of this life, but we should be looking for new heavens and new earth, which is not millennial, but actually post-millennial fullness of time that uh, we should be looking for in terms of our orientation. All right, turn to uh, Mark chapter 1 this morning. Mark chapter 1 as we continue our look at the casting out of this demon. This is the first of several such times that we will be examining events such as this in the life of Christ. And as always, when you deal with the first such incident, you want to glean as much as possible so that by doing our homework now, we will do ourselves great favors uh, down the road as we return again and again and again to similar incidents in the life of Christ. And in fact, we'll give you a survey of the upcoming times in which Christ will likewise be expelling demons, as well as times in which his disciples will be expelling demons. And then after Christ is resurrected and glorified, then the times that his apostles will go forth and expel demons and uh, will demonstrate the flaws of believers today in the dispensation of the church trying to get all involved in charismatic um, exorcism type ministries and will demonstrate from the book of Acts why that is such flawed reasoning to begin with. All right, in preparation for our study, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us this morning as we assemble together to receive instruction. We ask for protection, Father, that you might hedge us about on every side, even as you hedge Job about on every side. And we thank you for supplying our needs in this area, recognizing that we need your divine provision in the uh, battles of the angelic conflict. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this incident is incident number five in the Galilean ministry, and I just would encourage you to keep a Harmony of the Gospels handy just for um, reference, not only for this morning, but also um, periodically to refer to it as we proceed in the Life of Christ series. This morning, though, it will be very helpful to you because we uh, are going to be examining some of the upcoming demonic expulsions, and uh, I have attempted to reference the uh, the uh, the incident numbers, for instance, number five right here as an incident number in the Galilean ministry. And we look at this as Galilean ministry event number five. And uh, if for no other reason than consistency, we want to maybe refer to those events uh, as they are listed in the uh, Harmony of the Gospels handout, but they're also listed that way in your outlines. And so we're basically using that as a guide to, uh, to follow the course of this study. So incident number five in the Galilean ministry. And it might even be helpful for you to just kind of remember what the broad chapters are after his uh, presentation or after his uh, birth, infancy, and adolescence. We dealt with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which is sometimes referred to as the early Judean ministry, basically the, the Gospel of John material that's not covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That early Judean ministry called in our study the beginning of Jesus' ministry, followed by the Galilean ministry, followed 
by the later Judean and Perean ministry, and then ultimately concluded with the uh, the Passion Week itself, and then of course for the post-resurrection appearances. So that kind of gives you a rough a rough time frame in the life of Christ. All right, from last week, this episode marks the first event with Jesus Christ involved in both a teaching and training ministry with full-time vocational disciples. Dealt with the issues there. Um, passing by our subpoints this morning. Point two, this episode marks the first confrontation with demonic powers since Jesus' victory over satanic temptations. And we dealt with the issues there. Also point three, a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. A man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And we spent some time to focus on the vocabulary for the pneuma, the spirit. Same word that we use for the Holy Spirit. Same word we use for our human spirit. It's the same word, pneuma. And so we don't uh, have vocabulary helping us out in terms of what this word is. But we have to examine context. See, context determining what this spirit happens to be. And hopefully, and those that are in the uh, Greek class will start to uh, read some of this vocabulary a little bit better. And uh, I see we're doing funny things with my Greek font once again. I want to move on this morning to deal under point four with a demonic testimony. The words out of the demon's mouth when he is uh, exposed. And so for this, we'll just simply launch right into verse 24. The context for this being, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. That's verse 21. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So this verse right here gives us a testimony to what the nature of of ministry was prior to Christ's arrival. What are these guys accustomed to? Well, they're not accustomed to authoritative teaching. They're accustomed to other things. They're accustomed to the scribes, as is described here. And that form of teaching, which the Bible elsewhere describes, is is, uh, quite remarkable. People hold to a form of godliness, yet they deny its power. That there becomes extremely interesting because here now power has stepped in. The authoritative teaching of God's word equated with power steps in and exposes, brings to light this demon who cannot abide by the presence of Jesus Christ. So just then was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out. And that adverb there that links verse 22 to verse 23, that just then, the recognition of authority, the demonstration of divine power is the trigger that launches forth this unclean spirit who cannot hold his tongue. And he cries out saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And we're going to spend some time focusing on the, the, the hymns, the we's, the us's, the you's, the, the plural versus singular distinctions that occur here in these verses. Because there was a man, singular, in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, singular, And he, you have to determine whether that's unclean man or spirit. I believe it's spirit, and you'll see that. He cried out, but that's singular. But when he cries out, he immediately launches into the plural. What business do we have with each other? 
Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So there's more than just the man involved here, more than just the human being involved, and more than just the single demon involved. This unclean spirit is a part of a much larger group of unclean spirits, demons, fallen angels, and all the rest. And so he is speaking on behalf of the group, and we will break that down as well. All right, so sub-point A, what business do we have with each other? Interestingly enough, we have the very same language that we have in the uh, text of John 2 and verse 4. When Jesus is at that wedding in Cana of Galilee and Mary comes to him and says, uh, they have no wine. And, she sa- and Jesus says to her, what is that to you and to me? All right. There's a phrase there in, in John chapter 2, ti amoi kai soi. I'm not sure why I was doing this to my fonts, but that's okay. It's still readable. Ti amoi kai soi. What to, to me and to you is what Jesus said to her. We had a lot of teaching on that when we were in that particular incident. Ti amoi kai soi. What to me and to you? What business is that of you and me? What, what, what do we have to do with this wine problem here? How does that affect us? All right. And we spent a lot of time on that. It's a lot of times uh, in, in that incident is viewed as a very confrontational question. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. And I think we spent the time to demonstrate that between Jesus and his mother, it was not confrontational. It was not hostile. It was not negative in any way. It was actually it was a supportive question. All right. Now we put the same question into this context between a hostile demon and Jesus Christ. And here we find that it is a negative question. Here we find that it is confrontational because it's also immediately followed with, have you come to destroy us? And so in the in the broader context of this whole conversation, we recognize that this uh, this uh, context is very confrontational. The only difference between that one, that phrase and the one that we have here in our text is that it is changed from the singular to the plural. I'm going to bring this back up again. Here is the, the what to me and to you. But in our text here, the demon is asking what to us and to you. This demon knows he's not alone with this. That he wants to know why it is that Jesus Christ is now coming to expose these demons. And is he coming to destroy these demons? We realize that there's a lot of expectation with the advent of the Messiah. The Jews have their expectation. They expect uh, the Messiah to throw off the bonds of Rome. They expect the Messiah to lift up the seed of David. They expect Jewish dominion over the Gentile races. They expect a lot of wonderful, spiffy things that they've been looking forward to for a long time. They're tired of being trodden down by the Gentiles. They want the Jews to be magnified, see. And to the extent that they're totally irreligious about it they're totally they have no no desire to repent of their sins they have no desire to to get right with the lord they have no as no desire to be holy themselves they just want to put the shoe on the other foot and start stomping on the gentiles like the gentiles have been stomping on them all right to that extent they're patriotic but they're not spiritual all right and if I really start progressing down that line of thought, I can start preaching for a month of Sundays on patriotic but not spiritual and recognize that there is a whole branch of, uh, of um, 
oh, shall we call it patriotic Christianity today in this nation that has confused patriotism with a Christian way of life. A whole branch of evangelicalism that's confusing uh, patriotism with spirituality. So I won't go there. Those are the expectations of the Jews for the arrival of the Messiah. But let's start to consider that perhaps the demons themselves have expectations. The fallen angels have expectations. Recognizing that they also are not clear on what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That the demons themselves, the fallen angels themselves, have a rough idea of what God has said He's going to do. Because God has said He's going to destroy these guys. (laughs) There's a fire that has been prepared for Satan and his angels, Matthew 24 tells us. And so we start to catch a glimpse at some of the, shall we call it, uh, uh, diabolical paranoia. Uh, the, the forces of darkness that know that uh, God intends to cast them into hell. That He intends to cast them into an eternal fire, the lake of fire. And they're terrified that this is it. See, they don't know that there's going to be, that there's a, a, a time frame of, of 2,000 years plus in between first advent and second advent, if you follow. They don't know any more than we do at this point. Any believer would do at this point, based on what has been revealed at this point. All right? They have to start to recognize when the New Testament tells us that the mystery has now been unfolded, it's been revealed to the church through the apostles and prophets that these are truly things into which angels long to look. That there is a realm of teaching that the Father withheld, not only from human beings in terms of mystery doctrine, but He also kept it deliberately unrevealed so that the angelic beings did not recognize what was going to happen. See? And so there is a, a, uh, a wealth of information available there. What business do we have with each other? In other words, what do you have to do with us? <laughs> what are you about to do to us? Why are you confronting us? This teaching with authority impacts the angelic realm. See, they have no problem with non-authoritative teaching. In fact, they love it. They're, they're behind much of it. What is it that happens when a believer departs from the true teaching of God's Word? It tells us in Timothy that they fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. So what business do we have with each other? Why are you here with this authority? Why are you here with this power? Have you come now to destroy us? Is it the time? It is not yet the time. And we'll see more of that when they get very insistent that we haven't had enough time yet. All right? Almost like a child when you tell them it's bedtime. Oh, it's not bedtime yet. Can I have ten more minutes? Five more minutes? All right. Or they're busy reading. They want to know, can I finish this chapter? Say, no, you shouldn't have started the chapter you're in if you couldn't have finished it before bedtime. See, another story altogether. All right. What business do we have with each other? And the language is almost identical. And we spend a lot of time proving that when Jesus said that to Mary, it was not confrontational and negative at all. In fact, it was rather positive and encouraging. In this context, though, forget the positive encouraging. 
This is direct demonic confrontation with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as this uh, demon here testifies. Subpoint B, the demon rightly identifies Christ as Jesus of Nazareth. What business do we have with each other? Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus of Nazareth. The demon rightly identifies Christ as Jesus of Nazareth. Amazingly, because this is going to be the, the aspect that the Pharisees are going to be furiously denying. They're going to use that term Nazarene as a pejorative. They're going to view that, well, he's, who is this guy? This backwoods Galilean nobody. Didn't go to any of our schools. See? He's not from Jerusalem. He hasn't been raised up from the city of David. He's from this Nazareth. See? And they're going to use that as a pejorative. They're going to create a proverb themselves and start spreading it around so that by word of mouth it becomes an expression that no prophet arises out of Galilee. They're going to, they're going to convince their generation of that reality even though it's not true. Even though there were prophets that arose out of Galilee, such as, in all likelihood, Elijah the Tishbite, and with all certainty, Jonah himself was a Galilean. All right, So you have Elijah and Jonah very clearly as two Galilean prophets from their day, and possibly others. But nevertheless, that's not going to stop the Pharisees from launching this PR campaign to say, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And they're going to use that as a, as a propaganda tool. Although the demons have identified Jesus of Nazareth as being the Christ. See, and part of it goes back to the aspect of what uh, the Lord did, when, or what the Father did with Jesus Christ when he allowed for the massacre of those babies in Bethlehem. And when he took Jesus and hid him in Egypt for that period of time. And that successfully threw off the scent, so to speak, from the, the demons hunting the baby. And they didn't know. That uh, if the murder had been successful, they didn't know if if uh, they had successfully destroyed the seed of the woman. And for 30 plus years, Jesus was allowed to grow up in obscurity because he was raised in Nazareth instead of being raised in Bethlehem or Jerusalem or somewhere more uh, observed, somewhere more demonically uh uh, uh, patrolled and, and uh, searched and, and so forth. He was allowed to enter into, uh, to grow up in peace, in security, in, in obscurity. And so when he appears at the Jordan River, <laughs> and all of a sudden the heavens open and the dove descends, and, and this is my be- beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, that was a massive uh-oh to Satan. And all the other fallen angels was like, wow, 30 years ago we blew it. We, we killed all those babies and we didn't get the one. See, and so you can imagine the process involved, particularly now after he, re, you know, check out this guy. Who is this guy? Where is he from? How did he hide from us? Who is his family? How can we hurt him? See, and then he goes to Nazareth and he has the first encounter there where they try to run him off a cliff, now the demons have the full research, opposition research going. They know who he is. They know where he's from. And, they, and this is reflected in the statement, Jesus of Nazareth. Thirdly, the demon fears destruction for himself and all his kind. 
The demon fears destruction for himself and all his kind. And the verb here is apolumi, A-P-O-L-L-U-M-I, apolumi. The demon fears destruction for himself and all his kind. Apolumi is number 622 in your Strong's Index. A-P-O-L-L-U-M-I. For those of you in the Greek class, Alpha, P, Omicron, Lambda, Lambda, Upsilon, Mu, Iota. Apolumi, accents on the Omicron. Number 622. You will not be having this verb anytime soon because the grammar puts off your me verbs until very late. The me verbs are not very common and they're harder to deal with in their inflections. Apolumi, 622. Now, we can pull this up here real quick this morning. We are in Mark chapter 1 and verse... Um, 24. All right, and here's our question. Legon, ti hemin kaisoi, yesu, nazarene, elthes. And there's your uh, question mark, which looks like a semicolon. Uh, have you come to destroy us? And as us, plural. But here's apolumi, apolesi. And we're going to pull this up here in a moment and give you a little brief study on it. But this is our word for destruction. And this is what we have in uh, the sense of perishing in uh, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not, apolumi, be destroyed, be eternally destroyed in the lake of fire. Be eternally destroyed in the lake of fire. All right, now this little window pops up here and gives us a report on Apollumi. It's used 90 times in the New Testament. You can pull it up here if you'd like in your different lexicons. But for the moment, I'm going to drop on down here. This also shows you the different places where it's used and by their forms. For example, when it's used in the present middle indicative, when it's used in the aorist active indicative, when it's used in the aorist active subjunctive, when it's used in the future active indicative, and all the different places that we find it. Second person plural, second person singular, present active imperative, all the different forms that Apollumi takes. Now, um, I didn't want to pull that up. I wanted to pull up. Just a quick search where we can see all 90 times that Apollumi occurs. All not including, as I've pointed out, John 3.16. Let's get this out of the way. All right, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13 is the first one. When they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to apolumi him. 
Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Not just to kill him, not just to kill a baby, but to apolumi destroy the seed of the woman, to destroy the, the covenant promises of God, to destroy and, and thwart the eternal grace plan of God for the ages. That's the satanic attack upon the seed of the woman. He is going to seek, search for the child to apolumi him, to destroy him. Matthew 5.29 is used. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. And um, the use of it there. They came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Matthew 8.25. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? He's sleeping in the boat. The storms are raging on the Sea of Galilee. And they're terrified because they think they're going to perish. He says, You're not going to perish. The fun uses of Apollumi in this. Um, a few more of these uses. Matthew seventeen uh, fourteen or twelve fourteen. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Matthew twelve fourteen. So you get the idea here for destruction. And there will be a few more of these. There it is in John 3.16. Whoever believes in him should not apolumi, but have Zoe Ionion, eternal life. Alright, so here is what the demon is afraid of. Not only for himself, but for all his kind, because it's placed here in the plural. Have you come to destroy us? But the destiny of Satan, the destiny of his fallen angels, the destiny of the demonic minions, they're all slated for the same fire. They are slated for the same fire. So point D, the demon accurately identifies Christ as the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. You know, if more of the Jews had understood that title, they wouldn't have been as political in their thinking and would have been more spiritual in their thinking would have understood why it was the baptizer was telling them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have a change of thinking and get right in your spiritual life. Because the Holy One of God is here. Not just the Son of David, not just the Eternal King. The Holy One of God. The One that is going to reconcile you to God the Father. The Holy One of God. Demonic testimony. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know, the elect angels or the unfallen angels, the faithful angels, they're called Holy Ones. But He is the Holy One. You and I can be Holy Ones. You and I are called as saints. But that's only because we are in the Holy One. See, ultimately, Jesus Christ is the Holy One so far as the Father is concerned. And all the angels and all the human beings, uh, any relative holiness we might have or any absolute holiness we might have is by virtue of how we orient to Jesus Christ. As born-again believers, it's our, do we receive the righteousness of God through faith in Him? All right. We have this phrase in Luke one thirty-five. Interestingly enough, the demons could figure it out, but... Uh, the Pharisees couldn't. 
Luke 1.35, Gabriel says, you're going to have a baby. And she says, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He is the Holy One of God. John 6.69 John 6:69 Hmm gives them some tough teaching here and they say this is a difficult statement who can listen to it in verse 60 And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That's verse 66. See, some people love the excitement of the of of the uh, things as, wow, people are coming in, people are growing, things, great things are happening. We love the the music, we love the the fellowship and the programs and everything else. But teaching is getting a little deep. (laughs) So Jesus said to the twelve, "You do not want to go away, also, do you?" Everybody else is leaving. How about you guys? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where can we go? You know, when you leave a a local church that has solid teaching, where are you going to go? You start looking for other churches and they're not teaching. But you don't want to go back to the one church because, well, hmm. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? To whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Then verse 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Not just the Son of David, not just a political king, the Holy One of God, the one that's coming, the one that's going to lay down his life, the Holy One of God. Finally, Acts 3.14, another use of this phrase, similar anyway. Not holy one, but righteous one. Similar concept. Peter's preaching here. They're stunned because he healed a guy. And he said, why is this so shocking? Where do you think I got it from? Remember that fellow you crucified? He used to do this stuff all the time. (laughs) The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Remember? The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, remember? When he had decided to release him, remember? But you said, no, 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 give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus, remember? Hello? Wasn't that long ago? But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One, both Hagias and Dikaiosune, the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Remember? <laughs> Nothing like being an I told you so. But being a sanctified I told you so is saying, even though you did all that, you can still humble yourself and accept the grace gift of salvation. Imagine that. You disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murder to be granted to you, but you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. 
in any event. He has the opportunity. They can repent in verse 19. Anyway, powerful message. Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God, and this demon is testifying to that fact. An amazing way. All right. Then Jesus casts him out. Point five. Jesus casts out the demon by an authoritative command. Jesus casts out the demon by an authoritative command. There's no spell. There's no incantation. There's no magic words. There's no hocus pocus. There's no uh, amulet. There's no device. All there is is authority. The very same authority that triggered the outburst to begin with. Teaching with authority. Teaching with authority. Let's keep these things in mind. Teaching with authority. Jesus cast out the demon by an authoritative command. Um, what business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Be quiet and come out of him. And that's it. That's all it takes. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. There it is again. A new teaching with authority. We had it again in verse 22. Now we have it again in verse 27. When he rebukes him and says, be quiet and come out of him. It is teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Interestingly enough, how the spectators, the onlookers, recognize the demoniac for what he is. They recognize the possession for what it is. Possession is obvious. Whereas some of the more subtle um, influences, some of the more subtle um, ways in which demonic whispers can influence unbelievers and even believers uh, is more subtle and more hidden away. Uh, an out-and-out possession where the, the demon enters in and occupies the body and puts the mind to sleep and controls the, 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 the body, that then becomes obvious, as is in the case here. Now, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him immediately. The news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Interestingly enough, did they know that this demon was in their synagogue before he walked in? Or was it not until his presence that and his teaching with authority that caused the outburst? Say, that appears to be the case. Who knows how long the demon's been sitting in there until authoritative Bible teaching exposed him for who he was. And authoritative Bible teaching compelled him to depart. All right. Some points under this. The departure of the demon was violent for the human being involved. The departure of the demon was violent for the human being involved. It's not going to be unique to this incident. It's going to be, in fact, common. It's going to be repeated time and time and time again in several of the upcoming demonic expulsions that we're going to examine. The, uh, the blending of the angelic realm into the human realm is not a, uh, a pleasant process for the human being. 
all right, as you can imagine, being infested with uh, an angelic power or a demonic power. Being infested by a spirit being. I mean, think about think about how our bodies react anyway to any kind of intrusion. Uh, think about how the body rejects things that don't belong in there. See, if, uh, if something's transplanted or something's inserted or something's done and the body fights to reject what doesn't belong in it. And why we have to give anti-rejection drugs and other things to force the body to accept intrusion uh, because that's not what it was designed to do. All right. And now here's a, a spirit being infesting a body. And when he's commanded to depart, it's a rather violent process, throwing him into convulsions. We'll get more descriptions, particularly uh, in Luke. I think Luke, the physician, gives us some interesting glimpses into the process when uh, when uh, these guys are thrown about on the ground and flopping around here and there and being cast into the fire and a, a variety of other things that happen where nowadays we try to label it as epilepsy or other things like that. We try to medically or clinically describe things. Uh, modern medical science is still woefully deficient in uh, not recognizing demonic, uh, obviously demonic involvement in the human realm. Secondly, the witnesses to the spiritual battle were impressed. The witnesses to the spiritual battle were impressed. And that's important for a couple of different reasons. Not just simply for the gee whiz value. Not just for the sake that Jesus was trying to impress them. But the fact of his, of his authority over this realm should have done more than just simply impress it should have humbled and convicted that here before them is an authority that they ought to be subject to, that is, the authority of God Himself. When you stop to think about the realm of humanity as lower than the angels, and what is the authority then that would be higher than the angels? The authority then that can command these guys. So rather than being impressed, which they obviously were, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Not necessarily that the teaching is new in content, but it's certainly new in its methodology and in its in its the, the power that comes with it. And the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Remarkably enough, this is where the Lord's going to be ministering in the upcoming uh, couple of years. Now the term miracle is not used. The term miracle is not used. And I'm still searching this out. The term miracle is not used here. Not used here. Not used in the Luke parallel. When we talk about the miracles of Jesus, turning water to wine, walking on water, various healings, are rightly called miracles. And the term semeon, a sign, an attesting miracle, is, is used in those contexts. But for the expulsion of a demon, we generally do not find the term miracle as an attesting sign or wonder. Although we often think of it as a miracle. Was it a miracle? Was it not a miracle? Was it called a miracle? 
Whether it was or it wasn't, it wasn't called that, at least not in this context. Keep that in mind as we observe more of these. All right? And then we'll have a total of a dozen, 12 instances of demonic expulsion in the life of Christ's ministry. All right? And just as we approach each one, let's start to recognize, are these indeed signs? Are they signs? Are they miracles? Are they attesting wonders? All right? Or are they incidental events in the process of the angelic conflict? Not necessarily a sign or a wonder. Something to think about for future studies. And then finally, the emphasis is on teaching with authority. The emphasis is teaching with authority. The emphasis is teaching with authority. That's what exposed the demon to begin with. And that's what drove him out. Teaching with authority. We have it twice in this passage. We have it in verse 22. We have it again in verse 27. What prompted the exposure and what prompted the expulsion. Teaching with authority. I was asked one time by a uh, charismatic believer. A fellow I used to work with. And I love him in the Lord. I, have, I, I accept by faith that he is regenerate, that he is a brother of mine in Christ. Um, I just accept that by faith because love believes all things. And I want to believe that he is born again, that he genuinely loves Jesus and that he's genuinely I'm going to see him and spend eternity with him in glory. I think he's messed up on a lot of his teaching, obviously, because he's been wrapped up in Pentecostalism all these years. Um and uh, we'd, we'd get together on Monday mornings, for example, and, you know, ask, how were your services? How was Sunday? That kind of thing. And I'd like to ask, well, what was the message on? What was the sermon on? What was your pastor preaching about or teaching about? And it was interesting. We'd have something on which to, t- to discuss. And um, I remember there was one day when he asked me, he said, um, does your church cast out demons? And I forget how he phrased it because it was in, in actually in the church service, in the in the uh, as if you know one of the things that would occur in the process of a, of a of a church service. You know, like you have the the offering, or you have the 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 altar call, or you have the sermon, or you have the the piano solo, or you have uh, you know different things that would take place on a Sunday service. Uh, you'd have the the casting out of demons. See, or the prophetic utterance or all the different things they do in the charismatic places. And he, he asked me, he said, does, does your church cast out demons? And right then it was one of those time stop moments. Have you ever had one of those? Where you realize that you have to answer him within a few moments anyway. But in between the time where the question is asked and the time that you actually utter the words to answer, you're running through your mind very quickly thinking, all right, how, how do I answer this? Say, because I want to answer it biblically and I want to answer it in love. I don't want to cause a brother to stumble. See, but immediately it pops into my mind when he says, does your church cast out demons? Immediately it pops into my mind to say, no, we don't invite them in in the first place. <laughs> All right. No, we don't have to cast them out because we don't invite them in in the first place. See, and the barrier to the hedge, as it were, the protective wall that keeps them from coming in here and infesting 
teachers to become false teachers and, and all sorts of other problems is teaching with authority. Teaching with authority. Now, the moment that goes away, the moment a local church abandons sound teaching, when they depart from verse-by-verse verse, exegetical authoritative teaching of the Word of God, the doors are just been thrown wide open. Come on in. And time and time and time again, you end up with across the street. You end up with pastors and churches that tell you there's no such thing as Satan. That's a problem. But teaching with authority is a defense. It is a defense. All right. And it becomes obvious. The spirit of truth exposes the spirit of error. And it becomes obvious when teaching with authority is the hallmark of the local church on the part of the pastor, on the part of the deacons, on the part of the membership. It, there's just too many watchmen on the wall. There's too many lookouts, especially when you've got an active prayer meeting going on, for a demoniac to come in and start to teach the things that a deceitful spirit of the doctrine of demons would want to, would want to put forth. So the emphasis is on teaching with authority. All right, point six now. Other such demonic expulsions in Scripture. As I mentioned, this is the first of 12 that we're going to see in the life of Christ. There are others. And we will get to each one in turn. We will deal with each one. But hopefully, if we do our homework well enough here, then when we come to each one of these again and again and again and again, then... Uh, but each one of them should go rather quickly because we've already covered the basics of what these confrontations all involve. So we start in the Old Testament, really with the only illustration we can find of demonic uh, attacks, of demonic intrusions. It's not even a possession, but it is an influence, is David's soothing of Saul's demonic influences in 1 Samuel 16. It's extraordinary. The adversary is constantly shifting his uh, methodology, shifting his uh, means of attack. He didn't use possession in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, in the Old Testament, it was much more common for fallen angels to uh, produce children with human women and populate the land with giants. And he attempted to exterminate the Jewish race that way by populating the land with giants and preventing Joshua's conquest and then trying to eradicate Saul's kingdom with Goliath and his clan and, and all the rest. In the Old Testament, they, uh, the demons and uh, the fallen angels attempted to uh, conquer via uh, propagation and giants. Well, that didn't exactly work because <laughs> God kept lifting up guys like uh, Joshua and Caleb was a giant killer and David's mighty men and David himself. And and uh, it seemed that these giants, I mean, he could these giants could be birthed and could grow and could do things, but then they kept getting killed. All right. Satan realized and not only not only was it not getting him anywhere, but. Every fallen angel that was fathering these half-breeds was getting imprisoned for doing so. Getting bound in Tartarus for their transgressions. See, Second Peter 2 and Jude describing that. So, um, rather than depleting his forces here, these fallen angels started saying, well, we're not doing that anymore. 
Because every time we do this, we're getting incarcerated, see? Well, now comes another methodology. All right. What if we just simply infest their bodies and start possessing them? Anyway, so this becomes rather a, uh, a methodology we find in the Gospels, but not in the Old Testament. First um, Samuel 16 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 19, you should be familiar with these. We dealt with a lot of these in the life of David. Um, dealt with all of this in the life of David. Um, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And we spent the time to describe this. The evil spirit from the Lord was there under permissive will, terrorizing him, not possessing him, but externally influencing Saul's thinking, utilizing fear and terror as uh, as methodology. You see, terrorism isn't anything new. It's been a demonic tool for ages. And uh, Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Uh, Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. It shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. See, music calms the savage beast. And the, the medical thought at the time was that music could cure or at least uh, dampen uh, demons, could dampen insanity, could dampen uh, an unsound mind. And so Saul says, all right, get me one. And somebody steps up and says, you know, I saw a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. He might do the trick. And um, he's handsome and everything else. So they, he gets brought in here. And David came to Saul and attended him. Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, let David now stand before me. He's found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul... To Saul, not into Saul, but to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart, not out of him, but depart away from him. All right, so here's demonic influence within King Saul that uh, David's music, was it the music or was it the fact that David himself was spirit-filled? was it the fact that David himself was anointed by God the Holy Spirit as the next king. See, and, and the presence of uh, the anointed David, much like the appearance of the anointed Christ when he walks into the synagogue and starts teaching with authority, there goes the, there goes the evil spirit. That starts to uh, be diminished, though, in these later chapters because uh, Saul continues to occupy his mind not with things of the lord but with things of darkness and so we recognize in chapter 8 and verse 10 it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from god came mightily upon saul and he raved in the midst of the house even while david was playing the harp so the music didn't stop it at that point the uh, blessing by association was now diminished and the divine discipline upon saul was now increasing The spear was in Saul's hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Saul was afraid of David. See, there's again more of those demonic whispers. Chapter 19 and verse 9. There was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines, defeated them with a great slaughter, so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul, and he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. 
And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. So it got to the point where such was the um, demonic uh, influence upon Saul that even the music was no longer having the benefit that it used to. Probably the last reference I'll make to this is one that we find in First Chronicles and verse uh, chapter 21, I believe it is. And yes, First Chronicles 21.1, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Moved David to number Israel. Now, David was not demon-possessed. David was not, uh, you know, Satan didn't enter into the body of David and take possession of David. But he was sat- satanically influenced. He was moved, motivated, impelled See, and it's farcical to have the little cartoon image of the the little red guy with the horns and the pitchfork sitting on the shoulder and whispering into the ear, all right? Because Satan is not a little red guy with horns and a pitchfork sitting on a shoulder. But whispering into the ear is indeed a reality as far as the, the angelic forces and what they do to influence Unbelievers and believers alike. The whispering of the temptations. The, the, uh, the unheard voice, as it were, is not heard in the physical realm. It's not heard with earthly ears, but it's heard with spiritual ears. It's heard from the invisible realm into the human mind. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. That's why you've got to test the spirits. And when a thought strikes you or an impulse strikes you, it might be an internal impulse. Your sin nature is saying, hey, do this, do this, do this. Plenty of that going on with our sin natures inside of us. But maybe it's external where it's a demonic voice saying, do this, do this, do this. Keep in mind, though, you never can claim the devil made me do it because you still have the volitional capacity to reject that temptation, to resist the devil. He will flee from you say, and all the armor resources we have to stand firm and to resist the temptation. Even though Satan moved David to do this, David makes the decision to do it, and David's going to face the consequences for doing it. Because he does this, and then uh, here comes judgment. And uh, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, and, and here's, the, uh, here's the judgment here. And uh, verse 16, (laughs) David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. And David goes, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. All right. But he can't claim the devil made me do it. He is accountable because he did it. Never mind where the suggestion came from. Never mind where the impulse came from. And if it's your sin nature or if it's Satan or whatever it is saying, do this, do this, do this. It might be your wife. It might be Mrs. Job saying, curse God and die. Remember that it's not flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers. And she's only saying that or your coworker or your neighbor or whoever the snare is. They're only saying it because these are the tools that the adversary uses to influence what they want us to do. All right. 
Could be an unbeliever, could be a believer. Even when uh, the Lord said, get behind me, Satan. Who was he talking to? He was talking to Peter. And Peter was mouthing the temptations and mouthing the things that Satan wanted him to mouth. That's really the only one we find in the Old Testament. As I mentioned, possession is a, a change of tactics that we find in the New Testament, particularly we find in the Gospels. We find it in the Gospels and we only find just a handful of spots in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, we find about three places, not many. And from Romans to Jude, total absence of anything with respect to uh, casting out demons, with respect to demoniacs, with respect to possessions. And that's uh, very extraordinary. We'll comment upon that next week. Jesus Christ, demonic expulsions. We'll get a start on it. We've got three minutes remaining. The first one is this one. The demoniac healed on the Sabbath day. And if you want to mark down GM7, go ahead. And even that's a typo because it should be GM5. GM5, that is Galilean ministry Episode 5, not 7. Let's cross that off. It ought to be episode 5. So cross off the 7. That's a typo. Demoniac heal on the Sabbath day. Galilean ministry number 5. And your scripture text is Mark 1, 21 through 28. Luke 4, 31 through 37. That's the one we've been studying for the last two weeks. What we'll get back to next week. The second time this comes up, there's a large crowd it's going to be covered in Galilean ministry number 15. So it's coming up in another 10 episodes in the life of Christ. I want to turn over to Luke 6.18. I'm going to show you why this is such a, uh, a difficult study and why it is that we, even though I've charted out 12 of these expulsions, I may have missed some. And so we may uh, be adding more to this list as time goes by, because uh, some of these are hard to spot. Luke 6.18, simply in a large crowd, and as a matter of fact, the, the episode is titled, in your Harmony of the Gospels, the, the, the article is titled, uh, Multitudes Healed. It's not really a main confrontation with any particular demon. Uh, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. So there's a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of others that are not his disciples, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. So how many is that? We don't know. Several. More than a few, it looks like. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. All right. We'll deal more with that as well, because this again comes in the aspect of authoritative teaching. But you see why, in a passing reference... Uh, those who were troubled with unclean spirits are being cured. In a passing reference, you see that there were probably any number of other episodes where the Lord was casting out demons and we don't have it recorded. 
We don't have those confrontations recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Likewise, the third one, in the presence of the Baptist disciples, Luke 7, 21, one more chapter over in the Gospel of Luke. This is the last one we'll look at this morning. In the presence of the Baptist's disciples, in Luke 7, 21, remember the Baptist is in prison, he's about to lose his head. He's uh, wanting clarification on some of his prophetic studies. Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And uh, at that time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. Diseases, afflictions, evil spirits, described as three separate matters. Our doctors, of course, medical science today is all wrapped up in diseases and afflictions. Don't pay much attention to evil spirits, do they? Haven't seen a, a blood test yet that doctors say, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do some blood work here. I'm going to see if I can find some uh, evil spirits at work. No, they never do any of that. They'll look at red blood cell counts, white blood cell counts, proteins, all kinds of other stuff. They think they know what they're doing. But at that very time, he cured many people of diseases, it says many people, and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not stumble. Take offense at me. All right, so how many were there? It says many. We don't know the number. We'll come back to this next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. That we have the victory. That Satan, that Satan is defeated. That he is disarmed. That uh, in the world we may indeed have tribulation. And we will. But we are of good cheer. For he has overcome the world. Thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.